Hey, we're going to start off this way. Welcome to Tech Chat Tuesday. My name is Ken Rimple. Sujan Kapadia. And we are here today to talk about some dev news. Um, so a couple things up front. Let me uh, go ahead and, um, well, I can't share the screen, uh, but maybe, Becca, can you share the screen of 2021.phillyemergingtech.com? We are announcing officially that Philly Emerging Technologies for the Enterprise Conference is coming up on uh, May 4th through 6th, 2021. Uh, the site is launched. If you go to phillyemergingtech.com, uh, it should take you to 2021.phillyemergingtech.com. We put every year in there as a separate site, and uh, there it is. So there's an early bird of $70. We are doing one more virtual conference just because we don't know when everyone's going to get vaccinated, so we can't be sure. And look at who our one of our featured keynotes is. This is a major, major event. So we were actually able to reach out to Alan Kay, who basically helped invent personal computing. He was working at Xerox Park on the object-oriented uh, programming uh, you know, ideas and also creating the first graphical user interface at Park, which was then taken by uh, Apple to create the Macintosh. Uh, he had the 2003 Turing Award for pioneering many of the ideas at the root of contemporary object-oriented programming languages, et cetera, and fundamental contributions to personal computing. We reached out to him and we said, you know what, we would love to have your perspective and retrospective on things. And he was kind enough to say, yes, he would absolutely be interested in doing that. Yeah, so that's huge. We're, we're going to get him. It's amazing. I'm, I, wouldn't, I, I wouldn't mind hearing his perspective on anything. <laughs> I know. Yeah, he can talk about how cheese sandwiches are made. I'll be like, tell me more. <laughs> so um, we have him already. And uh, I've reached out to Brian. Brian Getz uh, is in again. He's a Java language architect at Oracle. We just did a, an event with him recently um about java 25 but he's going to speak about some advanced java technology we have uh the closure script lead developer david nolan who's always a great uh speaker uh matthew i think hawthorne i think is the name and there's one more confirmed uh, lee may nasseri who we know um so so far that's five we're going to have i think about 30 speakers uh, keep looking there. You can register early. It's a nice, affordable online conference. We're going to spread it out across three days. Um, and $70, seventy dollar early bird special. You can get on it right now and register to get your seat. Again, that's in April. I'm sorry, it's in May fourth uh, to sixth, twenty twenty one. Thank you, Becca. <laughs> All right, great. So that's that, and you can unshare. I'll share my screen then. Thanks. Uh, and let's see here. So if you want any other info. So for example, let me just go here to this browser. Someday I'll be faster than this. You know, don't hold your breath, everybody. Um, so that's it right there. So if you go to uh, chariotsolutions.com and you turn off the, de the debug, there we go. Uh, if you hit chariotsolutions.com, uh, there is a uh, resources tab. You'll find all the stuff we write and talk about and all of our events there. Uh, so, for example, you know, we've got blog articles. Um, we've got a couple of videos that we recently put up there. Um, we also have um, our podcast there on your podcast. So if you found this on Google and you want to subscribe to it, if you just go to chariotsolutions.com, uh, you can go to the resources podcast, hit the RSS feed or iTunes feed, and it'll take you right there to subscribe. Um, and so that's what's going on. Um, with that, let's start with our first news article. So, uh, Sujan, why don't you talk to us a little bit about uh, Gmail and YouTube and all sorts of other stuff being down? Yeah, sure. So I think the other week, or maybe two weeks ago, I don't remember now, we talked about, you know, the AWS outage. And yeah. I, I think there is definitely, like, an outage somewhere going on every week. 
the whole world runs on cloud services now. So the impact is definitely huge. But Google had a service outage, which for folks, depending on where you are in the world, um, may have not impacted as much as it happened really early in the morning, I think a day or two, two days ago. Um, but it affected Gmail, YouTube, Google Docs, or as they like to say, uh, services requiring users to log in. Okay, there's a lot of services that require a user to log in. Yeah, right? It's pretty funny. <laughs> um, they made it sound like it wasn't a big deal. But uh, what the underlying root cause is an authentication system failed due to internal storage quota-related issue. Um, I didn't do any more digging than that, but it was interesting that this was also falls under like capacity, right? Planning and capacity constraints, whereas the AWS-related outage, they were dealing with the number of threads running on in that OS on an EC2 instance or whatever it was for dealing with um, essentially handling DynamoDB um, shards. So, mm. well, Kinesis maybe, I forget now. But, or uh, whatever the database you have, right? Anyway, that was also really the OS threading related capacity thing. And they ended up adding, you know, beefier instances with more memory. And um, so they can run, and then they're going to be architected to uh, cut down the number of threads that need to be run because they're going to have larger machines, less machines. But anyway, this was also capacity related storage quotas. This one was like, okay, this cloud thing has real things running on metal that actually write bits and bytes to real things and it does impact at the end of the day. It's not just this infinite resource pool that just you snap a finger or wave a magic wand and a new machine and disappear. Like there are actually people managing this, working on it day and night. So one kudos out to, I just want to say to all the engineers, all the SRE, all the DevOps, Absolutely. all the people, all the security guards at these data centers that are working during COVID and stuff like everyone out there that's actually running the cloud for us so we can live the lives do the work we do. I mean, hats off to you. It's we really don't recognize you guys enough, and you guys deserve a lot of the credit for everything we do in our lives. So I, you know, these things are going to happen. I don't think it's anyone's fault. Um, we just have to be aware of what can happen and how to deal with it when it happens, and have alternate workarounds for our own things that we're working on or where we're storing our data and things like that. So. Yeah, totally agree. Totally agree. And absolutely, the, the work they do and the risk they put themselves under sometimes for, for the things they have to do, um, even bad weather and things like that, just, you know, keeping the systems up, is it's really important. There are a lot of people that rely on them. You know, the, the way I found out about it was I got an email from our uh, vice principal saying, it's down, it's down, we can't use anything. And by the time I checked, it was up again. So, hey, you know, that was a very fast outage. They got it resolved. And you know, it's interesting. This is yet another one of those cases where it's 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 an authentication system, right? So, one of the things that that caused the 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 falling over of the AWS stuff the other day was that Cognito couldn't work because it was bound up just trying to get a resource for I think logging, right? And so it couldn't even handle security connections, and that brought a lot of stuff down. So this is something I think a lot of these engineers are really going to start thinking about these choke points more. And they do anyway when they fail. They re they address them, but this is yet another kind of interesting. It's interesting is that that had a role in this one as well, you know, even yeah. though it was Google. So, okay, cool. So that's what, you know, we have a, a link to the TechCrunch article kind of talking through it a little bit. And there's, there's also an interesting status page. I forget where it is. Um, but, uh, oh, this might be it. Yes, this is it. So the starting comeback again link. Uh, there's your Google Workspace status dashboard. And you can see where when an event happened over a calendar time, you can kind of take a look and see where the, the problem is and what services. It's kind of interesting. And you, all these major cloud providers have these status pages that you can go to. And I'm sure they have it in JSON format and other things as well.
Okay, here's a, an interesting uh, uh, project out there, uh, and I was, it's just kind of grist to kick around some of these things. You know, I work with Docker a lot, and I'm, I've been working with building, you know, Docker images for some of my AWS uh, projects. Um, instead of picking some off the shelf, just figured, you know, I can take a base and add exactly what I want in and get what I need. And uh, HexOps has a project called Dockerfile out there, which is Dockerfile Best Practices. Um, and, you know, his, his, his line here from HexOps Dockerfile, the project on GitHub, is writing production-worthy Docker files is unfortunately not as simple as you would imagine. Most Docker images in the wild fail here, and even professionals, professionals often get, I love these little links, get this wrong. <laughs> Different issues uh, that, that fail, which could be fun to read. Um, and so he has some best practices for writing Docker files that uh, SlimSag is the name of the user on Twitter, I guess, have quite painfully learned over the years, both from his personal projects and his work on Sourcegraph. It's just a, a guidance, not a mandate. So if you look at the, the practices he has in here, this makes some, a lot of sense. Let's make the font a little larger. One is root, run as a non-root user on Docker, and that just protects you from kind of getting a process that gets like the, the root account and does bad things on that Docker instance and has more privilege than it should. To that aim, using a, a, a user ID below 10,000, that's kind of like a, one of the system usernames, uh, ID-wise perhaps. Uh, and he goes into to, uh, degrees here about what's going on. A static UID and group ID, don't use latest. This is like every other piece of software we work with, right? So if you're working with Maven builds, if you're working with NPM or whatever, it's it's easy to say this, but sometimes you get you get uh, a, a false sense of security that everything's been working for a couple months and you don't look at those files. But having like a variable version in your versions and things is just going to make it break at some point. And latest is a bad one because that means it doesn't matter what release it is. It's just the latest one that was pushed up to the Docker. Um, there's apparently a tiny process. I'm going to click on this one because I'm kind of curious. I haven't used tiny. Um, let's see. So tiny as the entry point in your Docker file. And I probably should know this, but hey, I'm learning while you're learning. Um, He's got a small little init for containers. So I'm going to look at this myself. I haven't seen this before. Let's let's post that. Beck, I'll throw that in there too. That's another thing to put in the, the links. Um, so it's like a, a tiny initializer um, to run your program. Uh, and so you have an entry point that then runs your command, and the entry point is tiny. right? So that's the way Docker works is the entry point's the thing that kicks off. And then that entry point will run whatever command you pass it if you do it this way. And so this is kind of make sure that it's a safe initialization of the program. So that's good to know. Um, and then only store arguments in CMD, but don't put them in the entry point. Um, so it allows people to ergonomically pass arguments to your binary without having to guess its name. So you can say Docker, run your image. And then because your entry point is already fixed into what it's going to be, your command is like the default options, and I've done this. Uh, the command is your default options, you're gonna pass it, uh, and then you can add. So if you're not a Docker person, this is like, what are you talking about? Uh, but, <laughs> go ahead. Is this like BusyBox or totally different? No, I don't think he, he's even saying that. I think Tiny is just an initializer. I think it's uh, something you would install so I'm guessing if I go up and look at the Docker file, we'll look at that in a second. It's probably installing Tiny in that Docker image, I would bet. Um, and then, you know, it says install bind tools, I guess, if you've got DNS resolution on older Docker versions, but okay. Um, and let's see. 
Is Tiny still required in 2020? I thought Docker added it natively. Unfortunately, although Docker did add it natively, it is optional. You have to pass init to the Docker run command. So what he's saying is, if you put Tiny in directly, so there's the answer. If you put Tiny in directly in the entry point, you don't have to pass init in. Therefore, you can make the command all the things that are optional and overridable. So this is interesting. You know, it's an interesting little uh, post here uh, in a, in a, uh, a Docker build. Um, and so, you know, something that you want. Ours, 18,000 or so organizations downloaded backdoor planted by Cozy Bear hackers. Oh boy, what happened? So a lot of uh, large companies, uh, Fortune 500 companies, the government, like, you know, Homeland Security, et cetera, um, a lot of their networking infrastructure, their routers, their switches, a lot of their machines use solar wind software to do network monitoring, like, you know, basically SNMP traps and getting all that kind of information and sending it back. So, you know, not only are there um, solar wind servers, there's a uh, software called Orion that had the backdoor installed in, and then agents that get installed on the things that are actually, that they're collecting uh, metrics from. Anyway, there was a backdoor that was planted as part of a software update and I'm hearing an echo. Is that okay? It's me here. I'll turn down my audio while I talk. Go ahead. Sorry about that. Um, that would stay dormant for two weeks. And then, you know, after two weeks, it pops up and basically starts sending traffic to this other domain. But it looks innocuous because it's sending data that looks like it's just part of the normal data that SolarWind sends. So, um, I think it affected, like I said, 18,000 know, and they had this basically remote backdoor that they can now get into and execute things. Now, the really scary thing I found, of course, all that should scare you, is it also stole SAML certificates. So the signed certificate, the ones you have a signed certificate, you can mm. generate your own um, users and they're trusted because they're they're signed by a trusted certificate. So now, you know, it had this backdoor, it had this update, it had it was dormant for two weeks, now it has a a stolen certificate. So they could essentially take over networks and the, remember the routers and switches, et cetera, that are running, they're already privileged. Like they're, they're yeah. internal privileged. So that, I mean, it's really scary in my opinion. Yeah. You don't know how far this has reached. You really don't. Yeah. Um, and, and I remember hearing the, the solar winds tripped my memory because this was the, the, the breach that happened where the, the treasury and um, commerce and Homeland security departments were hit with this. Um, and so that was the first place I heard of it a, a day or two ago. Um, yeah, this is a big deal. Um, so, uh, let's see. Yeah, that's scary. Okay. Well, Hey, talk to your network admin and see if they, <laughs> if they use solar winds. Um, I mean, yeah, that's the thing, right? These, all these different exploits, SNMP traps to SNMP is a simple network monitoring protocol for people who haven't run into it. It's it, it's what network operations use to make sure they know when things fail, if they're alive, to ping to see what status they have, get metrics out of them. And so talk about like a built-in protocol for the whole internet. That's, that's a scary one. Yeah. Wow. All right. Uh, goodbye, sent OS. Hello, Rocky Linux. Uh, this is a ZDNet article. Um, so apparently Red Hat recently uh, announced it was shifting focus from sent OS Linux to the Red Hat uh, enterprise Linux, um, you know, that, they're, that they're looking at, uh, they, they've been running that for years as like their big commercial version. And then CentOS was their open source version. And a lot of Docker containers early on were using it. A lot of, um, VPSs that people would put together, uh, would be running CentOS. Um, and so apparently the co-founder of CentOS, Gregory Kirsner, 
uh, heard that and he said, I'm going to create my own Red Hat Enterprise Linux clone called Rocky Linux. I guess it's like the, the underdog fighter. Da, da, da. We're in Philly. Come on. Da, da, da. Anyone know? Um, but anyway, so Rocky Linux. Uh, Kirstner, whose day job is now CEO and founder of Control Command, said, in quotes, I was just as shocked as the rest of the community when the news from Red Hat. When I started CentOS 16 years ago, I never imagined the incredible reach and impact it would have around the world on, on individuals and companies who rely on CentOS for Linux distribution. And there's a lot. So anyway, keep in mind, if you're using CentOS at this point, you probably have to figure out whether you're going to migrate to Rocky or if you're going to ultimately go uh, to Red Hat Enterprise Linux and pay the licensing fees. Uh, but at least, you know, the, the co-founder forked and, and did another version. Um, and it says, how, uh, let's see, already there are 650 would-be contributors. <laughs> Not bad for a project that's less than 48 hours old. Pretty amazing. So keep in mind, if you were on CentOS, pay some attention to this because at some point you may not be on CentOS or what's more important, you may not get patches at some point. So just keep that in mind. Pay attention to what they're doing with it and how they're closing it down and make sure you pick a path. Specifically, it seems like Rocky Linux might be a path to pick, but Rocky would be forked by this co-founder and it wouldn't be run by Red Hat. So it would be a different support team too. Something interesting. All right. So now Facebook's getting too big. What's going on? Yeah, I mean, so I didn't surprising entire article because I got bored after the first few. <laughs> yeah, from technologyreview.com. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But it's a great website. Actually, it's MIT Tech Review. Um, oh, yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah. Um, Facebook has obviously WhatsApp and Instagram and probably a bunch of other things I don't even know about. But they're really large when it comes to all the things you communicate on. You know, Facebook is more for people like me and you. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, right. Young bucks out there don't use it as much anymore. They use Snapchat <laughs> and other things. But Instagram is like exploding in popularity. It's insane. I don't, I actually don't use it. Yeah. But, um, and WhatsApp, which the whole world uses, which I do use to communicate with people, um, family and stuff in other countries. So anyway, mm -hmm. Facebook has a large, large hold on what most people use still to communicate these days. And the FTC is essentially saying that's a monopoly and it's stifling competition and Facebook, you know, buying companies to stifle competition. And I think in the past they were able to agree on certain things and, and kind of increase each other's palms. But now um, I don't think that's the case. And FTC really wants to review everything. And it looks like they're serious about their, about threatening Facebook and disbanding these things and breaking them up. So I don't know what that'll mean for the future of communication and stuff. I, I, I it's nice that, people are looking at it and the government is concerned about one company controlling what most people use for a communication platform. Um, at the same time, they are really useful platforms. Um, yeah. So what also concerns me is what comes out of this. Like, it's not just going to be breaking up companies. Like, is it going to change the software? What are people going to be allowed to and not allowed to do? We were talking about backdoors earlier. Are, you know, are governments going to ask for backdoors to be installed? Are they going to be collecting data as well from doing the searches and forensics around this. Anyway, I mean, um, hopefully it generally speaking goes in a, in a good direction. So we'll see. Yeah. It's just something to watch and keep, keep an eye on as things are shifting around what, what changes on the ground for us, for example. Um, yeah, there's, there's a lot of this aggregation of, you know, companies like Amazon buying companies and Google and, you know, a bunch of other, uh, organizations, you know, just gobbling up smaller companies as a way of growing. Yeah. So, and so. I feel like, you know, maybe something like that, you know, someone acquired like Salesforce bought Slack recently and right. they start buying a lot of stuff and the same thing happens. So 
lot of people use a lot of companies use these these packages, right? So they rely on it. So it, it concerns me that things can be yanked or stopped. So I don't know if I were a small company, I probably would look at running things locally to a certain degree, maybe Discord or something. And like, you know, do we have to be dependent on some large cloud services for communication, or can we run our own? infrastructure and make sure it's secure and you know is that worth it are we going to be any more secure than these large companies that have 24 by 7 workforces making right. sure things are okay but it makes me think a little bit more about stuff like discord yeah i understand that that makes some sense you know and some of these things like for example you look at slack and its licensing fees and stuff and you look at uh you know other uh, kind of collaborative tools and how as they went to the cloud things are as they scale up things can get really it's really cheap to start but they get really expensive later like running something open source in your own network is it's almost coming back into vogue maybe a little i don't know private cloud public cloud offline cloud what am i doing all right interesting article though all right um maven damon uh anybody still use maven the answer is going to be most people in the enterprise are either using that or gradle if they're java developers so it turns out that uh, there's this open source project uh, i believe it's an apache project um and what they're doing is they're taking techniques from gradle and another tool i've never used called takari uh and so the idea is that it's a, a daemon that runs that embed, embeds maven so you download it and it has maven embedded um there's a, a background process that's long lived uh, and it can conserve multiple requests from the client tool called MM MVND. It's written using GraalVM. Now, GraalVM is a, uh, a a runtime that basically compiles down to machine code as opposed to just bytecode, if I remember correctly. It's a much faster, or at least internally, it optimizes the machine uh, to assembly or machine code. It's a very fast uh, VM from Oracle um, that is an alternative to the JVM or the regular open JDK. Uh, JVM. Uh, it starts faster and uses less memory comparing uh, to a traditional JVM. Uh, and so the interesting thing here is that uh, it caches everything as it builds. And this is probably what, what Gradle does too, is that as the jars are being loaded for build, it'll cache them and keep them around in memory. So that the next time you hit save, it doesn't have to scatter load a bunch of jars from an SSD or disk. Um, now, somewhere in here, they were talking about some speed. And oh, by the way, if you use SDK Man, which is a tool that installs all sorts of Java-related tools, it's kind of like the brew for the, the JVM set, um, you can install it from SDK using SDK install MVND. Now, I'm trying to find here, there was something about this tool. It was some ridiculously fast uh, build speeds. Oh, and now I won't find it. <laughs> Uh, but the bottom line is that uh, what it will do is because everything is so cached, that we're talking about things that could take 30 seconds normally, taking like a quarter of a second to half a second once everything's loaded into memory. So this is the kind of tool you want to use as a developer. If you're doing Maven every day, you could look at this as an alternative to, to start off Maven and maybe really speed up your builds. Let's look at that. So is that the question? Is that... And I've not used it. Go ahead. Or is it doing like incremental compilation as well? I don't know that it can. Well, I mean, if you think about the 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 Maven Java compile task, it it does incremental compiles, I believe, by default anyway. Okay. Um, so it should just do them, but everything's now cached. So okay. that could be a huge increase in speed. I know that's the biggest thing. Whenever I, I worked on a Spring project in, in more recent times, I'm like, ah, I got to do a Maven build. And I I used to teach and consult using Maven all the time, um, but things have gotten just so much faster. It's good to know that there actually is a tool out there from 
Apache that's starting to come out that might really speed that up for people too. So enterprises rejoice, I think. <laughs> hey, what what is CockroachDB? It's got the best name of any open source tool I've ever heard. <laughs> what is that? I will, uh, give me one second. I mean, to me, it says it's going to survive forever. That's my first thought. Like it's, you can't kill it, you know? Oh, I didn't even, when you say that, I wasn't even, uh, that's funny. I yeah. never consider that. <laughs> you know, the things that'll be around after nuclear war will be like cockroaches and, you know, um, Rick rolling videos will still somehow get preserved, I guess. I don't know. We won't be around, but it, they'll just be playing in a loop. So this so, is scalable spatial indexing in CockroachDB. Go ahead. I haven't used CockroachDB myself, but mm -hmm. one of their kind of things or their stick is like an ACID compliant NoSQL database, right? Okay. So they're guaranteeing like strong consistency, strong rights. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think that a lot of cloud providers have played around with them and a couple of startups that I know have, have used this successfully for like really large scale deployments. Um, you know, it does dynamic kind of horizontal scaling by sharding and kind of handles all that kind of behind the scenes and guaranteeing acid. Again, I haven't looked at the Jepson report for CockroachDP to, uh, to see like what, what he found. Um, mm -hmm. But anyway, what uh, pertains to this article is um, spatial indexing. So a couple of our projects, we actually use PostGIS on Postgres to do geospatial indexing. And if, for those that don't know, spatial indexing is a way to basically answer a way to store data so you can answer queries like hey where is this located or how far is x from y or tell me like all the things that are located five miles within this point so you can run basically spatial queries um and you can imagine a lot of things are location based these days so it's a critical critical feature and capability to have for a lot of software out there um and it just becomes more and more as the number of mobile devices and iot increases but anyway um, this I thought this article was interesting. Any article where they talk about why and how they made an architectural decision and they describe it, I always consider golden. Because yeah. Sometimes all you get is the how-tos or like, okay, do this, but not like how did we arrive to this architecture? So they go through two different types of spatial indices. Uh, one is called divide and conquer. One's dividing space. So there's mm -hmm. basically it, the one case which Postgres uses PostGIS is very data dependent. So it looks at the data and, and basically creates an index based off of where the actual points are spatially. Um, the second approach, which you can do, um, that first approach is essentially called R-trees. The second approach, which Cockroach is using, is a, another very popular one called Quad-trees, where you're basically dividing a fixed bounded space into um, quarters. So for each point, it has four children saying like, you know, basically four quadrants. So every time yeah. you add in a new point, you go down, you're, you're breaking the space into four more and you're indexing that way. So it's always fixed. And your IDs that get generated are near each other, numeric, like spatially. So you can run range queries very easily. Um, the numbering is consistent. It's more space efficient. And very importantly for Cockroach is it's not, um, it's not sensitive to uh, scale. So if you're adding nodes, removing nodes, like actual machine nodes, and have to like rehash the data, it doesn't change the index. You don't have to re-index everything and figure out where does this point now go into this new index. It, it can withstand scaling up and down. So that's why they chose quad trees over the R trees. But anyway, if you're interested in geospatial, interested in database indices and why certain decisions are made, it's a very interesting read. And under the 
hood uh, cockroaches using Google's S2 um, geospatial library. Gotcha. Very interesting. All right, cool. Interesting article. Ah, the past, present, and future of cloud-native API gateways. I think I pulled this one. Um, I just threw this out here. I haven't actually, I haven't really watched this one yet. I got to be honest with you. Um, it was on my list of things to do, but I'll tell you my, my motivation for it, which was, you know, I've been, I've been again, and you'll hear this all the time on this show, but I've been wrestling with, you know, containerized applications versus serverless applications. And working right now on a blog post on kind of some how to's on the serverless side of things where, you know, how you would approach like, uh, you know, building your services, testing them, testing them in isolation, testing them kind of in context, uh, you know, locally, uh, so you can speed up the development process, accessing data uh, in databases, uh, you know, let's say like DynamoDB or whatever on a Docker side, uh, versus like running individual microservices. Um, and one of the things you run into if you start deciding to kind of assemble a couple of these services together to test them is you need to run them in a localized simulated API gateway. So that was my that was in my mind as I saw this particular article. Uh, and so like, for example, I think it's called start API is the command on serverless SAM, which is uh, AWS's product that what it does is it fires up uh, an API gateway, which is basically just an endpoint that has URL paths that point to the individual services, microservices, lambdas, single function uh, pieces of code. Uh, and so there's that. But I wanted to watch this anyway. So da Daniel Bryant discusses the evolution of API gateways over the past 10 years, current challenges of using Kubernetes. And this is the same thing, right? You've got containers and you've got single entry services like lambdas. Putting them all together behind one kind of facade, so to speak, is what an API gateway would give you. So this is kind of looking at where they are, where they're headed. Uh, and the future. And I know, for example, that that's one of the things you use if you want to kind of federate everything, but make it easy from the front end to hit things and you don't care where they come from, right? So maybe you start off with a legacy application that's sitting over an EC2 and you start breaking it apart into multiple lambdas or even Docker or containers for kind of groups of microservices. They can still look like one endpoint to the front end. That's what an API gateway's job is. So, uh, you know, unfortunately, I, I put this in the bookmarks. I'm like, oh, yeah, this. And I thought it was you. And then I realized, no, that was me. <laughs> so anyway, if you're interested in reading about API gateways, check it out. But uh, they're, they're definitely something you would end up using when you're kind of pulling different services together and you want one kind of choke point or control point of things like security and exposing them under a web service path. All right. Tiny ML. All right. Um, so I've been, I ordered a book the other day. This is not new. So in terms of dev news, this is not new or anything, but a uh, tiny ML is essentially, you know, running machine learning on embedded devices on devices that have a low amount of memory that may be running on a real time operating system or not. And uh, that have low power consumption. So think like something in the milliwatts, you know, something yeah. that can run on a coin battery, or at least in my own thing for for hours, days, weeks, even years. Um, and these machine learning libraries and models are becoming small enough that you can actually run them on these really small uh, embedded devices. Uh, for example, like you look at your Amazon, you know, Alexa or your um, Echo Dots or, you know, Google Home, stuff like that. Uh, just think of something like wake word recognition, like, hey, Google or, okay, Alexa type stuff. Recognizing that wake word, you know, that's machine learning. It can a very specific neural network to recognize that phrase specifically, but that can, 
can be basically compressed and run on a very small library, tiny ML TensorFlow light on an embedded device, an Arduino, um, an ARM chip, things like that. So uh, I'll, I'll put a link to the tiny ML book later, but this article basically kind of goes over at a high level, what is tiny ML and why is it important and that you can make things that used to only run on laptops or phones now run on really, really small devices. So you can push the smarts more and more to individual devices out there so they can do things like, you know, make certain decisions or filter data or do things without having to talk back to the cloud, stuff like that, because they're deploying the whole model. Um, anyway, if you're interested in machine learning, um, I would definitely take a look at it. I think it's an easy way to get into machine learning. You can use things like Jupyter Notebooks or Google Colab um, and Python and basically start uh, getting some data and, and doing the example of putting models together. And then basically uh, you, you take a model and then you basically format it for running on an Arduino or something like that. So it's compressed, it's in C. Um, so easy way to get into machine learning. A couple of years ago, or maybe four or five years ago now, I took a machine learning course on Coursera by Andrew Eng, which was really good. And it kind of straddles the, like not having to do much math, much, much math but knowing a little bit of it. And I was like, well, this stuff's so complicated, I'm never gonna be able to do it for real or learn it. And I kept staying away from it because I'm one of those guys that don't like to do something without really learning how it works underneath. But machine learning is just too big and too many things with stats and calculus and stuff like that um, in higher level math. So I think it is at a point now where you can learn machine learning without having to get into all that. And as long as you have someone that maybe has more knowledge or someone to bounce ideas off of and review what you're working on, um, you can use things like TensorFlow and its higher level API Keras uh, to learn machine learning and potentially even use it on real projects out there without having to know everything there is to know about uh, statistics and calculus. Gotcha. Great. Great resource. And I found that course. It looks like he's running it actually uh, coming up in December 21st. Uh, an updated version, I guess. So that's good to know. At Stanford, of all things. Um, all right. Ah, oh. uh, here we go. Santa's going to visit the International Space Station? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, the local company, Cesium, they do 3D geospatial um, data analysis and, and processing. Um, you know, really well known, really well known and the leader in that space. Um, every year they do the Santa tracker, no red thing, which is awesome. And you can actually see where Santa is in real time. And they use all the data and processing and analytics and graphics stuff that they have to, to pull that off. But uh, this one's really cool because they're going to be visiting the National Space Station. So, you know, I, I wanted to just shout out Cesium. We've worked with them before. Really yep. great team, great people, super smart guys. And this is really cool for, you know, I'm going to definitely have my daughter look at it. Um, I think she's going to get a kick out of it. Yeah. Good picture. Yeah. <laughs> Very cool. Good group. Yeah, I know these guys. Absolutely. All right. Um, first glimpse of Cesium for Unreal. Is that? So this is also Cesium. Um, but what they're doing is, so Cesium does a lot, like I said, a lot of the 3D geospatial stuff. So they get like, they collect data from all sorts of things. And they're the kind of leader in, in getting that data, analyzing that data and geospatial mapping. Well, they're taking this data and their, their expertise and providing it, working with NVIDIA, Epic, Microsoft, right? Providing that to the Unreal Engine, which is so, any game out there. This is really cool because now yeah. you're, like, you're, again, you're blurring that line between reality and virtual reality. Oh. You're taking real data 
that's being updated in real time and feeding it into a game engine. So just, I mean, there's so many possibilities of this. It's like, I could talk about it forever, but it's really, really freaking cool. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. This is cool. This is, makes me wish I was actually a game developer. <laughs> I would have a blast with this. That's really cool. Look at that. And then I mean, imagine putting like a, you know, a VR headset on and, and there's just, I, 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 I think the next 20, 30 years of gaming and VR and AR and stuff is going to be mind blowing. This is like the Microsoft Flight Simulator, right? So Microsoft Flight Simulator. I used to be a big Flight Simulator nerd as a kid. No, no kidding, right? Um, <laughs> do I have the word? Yeah, I have to admit it. You know, I do I have the word Commodore 64 nerd on my head? I probably should. But um, yeah, I used to fly these flight simulators all the time. And it was always about trying to get accurate, real-time-ish data somehow from some feed of data. And, uh, you know, I know they've, they've now been doing that at Microsoft where they're, where, you know, getting real time, not real time, but they're getting, they're getting, uh, accurate data from these types of tools for a flight simulator that just got released. Um, unfortunately it doesn't run on my Mac, but you could do your same kind of thing. You could have like a virtual flying anywhere and checking things out kind of tool like this and the unreal engine that just makes that so cool. All right. Anyway, nerding out on this and you have one more, I'm sorry. No, that is it. Okay, cool. Yeah. All right, great. Well, that's our dev news for today for the Tech Chat Tuesday. Thank you so much for listening. If you have any feedback for us, please hit us up and send us a tweet on at TechCast. You can email me at techcastfeedback at chariotsolutions.com. Uh, we'd love to hear from you there as well. And uh, otherwise, you know, you can subscribe uh, to the podcast for the Chariot TechCast, which this is a feed uh, entry of at uh, chariotsolutions.com slash techcast. Uh, which is the page I showed you earlier that has RSS and uh, uh, RSS and iTunes links. And also visit us over on YouTube. Uh, one thing I want to point out is on YouTube, we've got a ton, a ton of resources. Um, let me show you here. So we've got uh, videos going way back to like 2012 even, um, you know, on, in different playlists from all of our different shows, you know, all of our Philly Emerging Technology for the Enterprise conferences by the way if you have any year-end budget to send people to conferences 70 bucks is nothing to spend and it's a great conference so just to kind of plug our ete conference again again that's at 2021.phillyemergingtech.com uh, or just phillyemergingtech.com but all of them are there in playlists uh, we've done other different shows for example we had a whole show featuring uh internet of things on aws in 2019 um you know we've done uh you know some other things as well over the years, I don't know why I only have a few of these right now. But anyway, the point being, there's a lot of content on youtube.com slash chariot solutions. All right. So with that, I'm Ken Rimple. I'm Sujan Kapadia. And we will see you next week. Take care. Take care.